1: Thank you for being here for yet another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigut. Um We've got a good show lined up for you today. In fact, uh, we're bringing together uh, a panel uh, that uh, we had on the show, what, about five weeks ago, I think, uh, I haven't looked at my calendar to be sure of that, but around then, um, when we wanted to talk about women and the 2020 election. Um, at the time we did that panel, we were commemorating the 100th anniversary of the final passage of the 19th Amendment, which uh, finally, once and for all, did what women already really had the right as American citizens to do, which is to vote, but which they had been denied. And uh, really, we're still in the uh, midst of talking about women and their impact on politics, uh, both as participants— Uh, And as voters. And so to talk about that, first of all, we're joined by my partner on the Thursday show, Kevin Riley, the man, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Bill. Good morning. Again, my
2: favorite part of the week all the time, this hour on Thursday, and I am so looking forward to this show because the topic. I, I'm, I feel very lucky to be part of it. I have a bunch of questions, and this panel uh, is, is going to oh, be good. great. So, th- so thanks for having me.
1: Good. Oh, my gosh. In introducing you, by the way, I, I haven't mentioned it yet, but last, I think, Saturday night, your team and a few of the people at Georgia Public Broadcasting won an Emmy— for a, uh, a town meeting that was based on your phenomenal series uh, about uh, serious crises in assisted living facilities. So I want to congratulate you, Kevin. AJC gets an Emmy. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, we are excited to, of course,
2: to get an Emmy and proud of that reporting. But I, I think it would, uh, I would be remiss by not mentioning first you who were the host and did a, did a really uh, wonderful yeah. job. And, of course, the team at uh, GPB that really pulled the production together and uh, you know worked so closely with our folks um, were part of it, too. So uh, both thanks to GPB and congratulations to GPB.
1: Yeah, I just went along for the ride, Riley. I just went along for the r- I was the blabber. <laughs> On that, show, on that one. Uh, But I was happy for, for everybody who was involved in that production. Uh, all right. We're also joined today by Amy Steigerwald, Dr. Amy Steigerwald, a, pl- a professor of political science at Georgia State University. And you all know her as a frequent, frequent participant in the show. And it's particularly uh, meaningful uh, today, Amy, to point out that you are the co-author of uh, Gendered Vulnerability, How Women Work Harder to Stay in Office. Legislative Politics and Policy Making, um, a book which I think came out its about two years ago that it, it first came out. Yes, Amy?
0: Yes, it came out uh, in 2018. And the other thing that's exciting is today is actually Constitution Day. So it's sort of particularly apt to be addressing this, especially in the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and other things there. So it's a great day to discuss this stuff.
1: Well, thank you. Well, we're really glad that you're going to be part of this conversation today, and we also have with us today two women, uh, one Republican, one Democrat, who have been very active in uh, in working on recruiting women candidates for office in Georgia, but also working, especially on efforts to uh, it, it, to empower women. Uh, to be involved in politics in every other way, as voters, um, as participants in community organizations and the like. Uh, So I welcome Julianne Thompson, who is a Republican strategist and um, has spent a lot of time working in Republican Party politics in Georgia, one of the founders of one of the uh, top tea parties back in 2010 in Georgia. And I also want to welcome uh, Melita Easters, who's the founder and director of the Georgia Win List, which is an organization dedicated to recruiting pro-choice Democratic women to run for office. Julianne, how are you today?
3: I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Bill.
1: Yeah, good. And Melita, things are going well for you?
3: Busier than the one-armed paper hanger.
4: Thanks for having me. All
1: right. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I want to start by uh, reading a few poll numbers very quickly. Uh, Kevin Riley, I'll uh, give you a chance first to weigh in on this and then let the rest of the panel do it. So um, (laughs) the uh, Landmark Communications, Mark Roundtree's uh, group um, out in Gwinnett County, has the most recent poll of Georgia voters in the presidential contest. They conducted their poll in the aftermath of both conventions. And what they found in general is that Donald Trump uh, leads Joe Biden forty eight percent to forty one percent in Georgia. That's a larger margin, Roundtree found than uh, have most of the other polls of Georgia. But it's particularly noteworthy to talk about it in terms of women. Uh, because in, in, in terms of women voters in Georgia, uh, Roundtree finds that Joe Biden uh, had about 47 percent of the vote and uh, Trump had 43 percent. That's still within his margin of error. Um, but I think, uh, Kevin, it's, it's a good way to start the show to talk about how women are going to play a role in determining where Georgia goes in the presidential race
2: i agree bill i'm curious to to know what our our panelists will think about this but yes i mean if you're going to consider the margin of error in that landmark poll they're dead even i mean you know there no one's ahead because it's within the margin of error and i have to believe that's a surprise to democrats um based on all their plans and all this conversation about georgia being in play because without <laughs> without a big margin among women i i, I don't think it's pot i mean i'll I don't think it's possible for the Democrats to or for for Biden to win in Georgia.
1: So, at a starting point, let's go around the group and just get everybody to weigh in on what you thought of those basic numbers. Amy, uh, you're the political science scientist. What'd you make of those numbers for for the women uh, in the poll?
0: I'm little surprised on the numbers for women that it's not a sort of broader divide between the two parties because that's something that we're seeing. Nationally, is that in general, sort of the so it's a pretty stark. It's about a twenty point difference for the men between Trump and Biden support. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of polls, we're seeing something that's similar uh, with women. Usually, it's a little closer to fifteen percent, but there's a pretty stark um, gender divide that's going on there. So it's a little bit of a surprise that it that it's closer there. Um, there is, you know, about ten percent are saying that they're still undecided. So. That does, of course, have the the possibility of pushing it there. But I I am a little bit surprised um, on that one. Um, One thing that should be notable, which I think that we also want to put into the discussion on this, is that in general, since the 1980s, women of all races also vote at higher rates than their male counterparts. Mm -hmm. White women vote more than white men. Black women vote more than black men. Asian women vote more than Asian men and Hispanic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that is sort of a really important thing. And so there's also a question of sort of what that number then means as people turn (laughs) out and go to the polls, because what you need to see are right each of your sides going on. And there's a good argument, honestly, particularly in this election, uh, for people to really focus on ensuring that women are making it to the polls.
1: Uh, Melita, talking just for the time being about the presidential race, uh, Amy makes a good point. A number of us noticed the same thing. The gap between men and women in Georgia, based on what Mark Rountree found, isn't enough uh, right now. Is it for Democrats to feel confident that they can win Georgia? You need a much bigger turnout of women in favor of Biden to get anywhere in the state, don't you?
4: You do, but I also think that you should look at who was polled in this particular poll Georgia is eight years away from being a majority-minority state, and of the 500 people polled, 315 of them were white. And so this poll skews to the white part of the voting population and not to the complete picture of those who are likely to vote in Georgia. And therefore, it's pretty hard to take all of these numbers with anything but a grain of salt.
1: So uh, Julianne Rountree would say that he uh, weighted the African-American vote in this poll at 30 percent. So while Melita makes a very good point, there were they're, they're a big sample of white voters. Uh, there was a weighting process that uh, Rountree put into his uh, data crunching that came up with these numbers. Um, so what do you make of the poll, Julianne?
3: Well, you know, going back to what Amy said, um, there is a 10 percent undecided factor in there. And I think that that is going to make the difference. And it is going to be about who gets their voters out, which side, which base gets their voters out to the polls. And to win, you always have to run like you're behind. So polls were not accurate in 2016, although I do have to admit that Mark Roundtree's polls back in 2016 were among the most accurate in the country. And now they are uh, so revered, they're actually being uh, quoted on national television, so March polls are very accurate, but that being said um, if there's one thing i 'm hearing from women and you know non political people in general, it is a, the law and order issue, and I know that polling has said that the law and order issue was not necessarily a driving factor in the presidential election um, but I will say had these Had some of these riots and and the activity that's been going on lately, had it occurred closer to November, I think it would have dealt a mortal blow to Democrats. I really do. But um, I, I think that I think that they waited too long to disavow it. And I think that that is why the polls are looking like they are now. But keep in mind We are seven weeks away from the election. So if two weeks is a lifetime in politics, seven weeks is an eternity. So we don't know what's going to happen between now and the election. So anything, anything could happen.
1: All right. With your indulgence, I want to come back to presidential uh, politics and the presidential election and some polling uh, a little later in the show. But I think it's important that we talk about what's going on right here on the ground in Georgia. By the way, Julianne, when you say that Democrats waited too long on law and order, are you talking nationally? Because you're quite right. The national polls suggest that uh, uh, people – uh, still prefer uh, Biden over Trump when it comes to the handling of protests, the, 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 the limited number of actually violent protests out there. So I, I'm not sure I get how that's hurt Biden, except if you're talking in Georgia where it might be a different issue.
3: Well, I'm talking about both in Georgia and nationally, but because I live in Georgia, these are mostly the people that I talk to. On the ground, and this is something that I am hearing among a lot of people, and it's something that I'm hearing among a lot of law enforcement people that ordinarily vote Democrat, and a lot of people in the legal community, activists, attorneys that usually vote Democratic. So this is a lot. These are a lot of the rumblings that I am hearing, and that's what I'm going by.
1: Thank you for that. Okay, as I said, let's if you do, if you'll all allow me, let's park presidential for just a little while. We definitely have want to come back to that, but. Um, Melita, why don't you, given your position as founder and director of the Georgia win list, give us a sense of the number of women you have recruited and now still have actively running in the general election, and just give us an overall picture. We obviously can't go through each of the women individually, but how healthy a group do you, in terms of numbers, do you have in this 2020 cycle, and what are the offices you're focused on?
4: Well, we're focused on the Georgia House and Georgia Senate, obviously, because that's that's where we endorse. We have a total of 54 women endorsed for this election cycle, 40 of whom have um, contested November races. We have 16 women who hope to flip House seats and seven women who hope to flip Senate seats. Um, what's really amazing about this crop of women is that they are so diverse. 33 of them have advanced degrees. Eight of them are attorneys. Three have scientific PhDs. One is a practicing physician. 28 of the women, eight of whom are currently serving, but 28 of the women are the mothers of children younger than 18. And that would dramatically shift the kinds of policy discussions you have under the Gold Dome because you would have women who are actually raising young children talking about how those children would be educated, talking about child care policies, talking about the kinds of things which make a difference to Georgia families. But but there are many outstanding women among this group. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing. I mean, so this is one of the
0: issues that we're seeing uh, both in Georgia as well as nationally is this issue of sort of building the bench, right? When we talk about our candidates for Congress, right, candidates for governor, candidates for president, many times you don't see someone running who hasn't already kind of built their way up. And so the way that you sort of build that bench is the recruitment that you're doing uh, for local elections for the state general assemblies. And that is um, sort of objectively speaking, particularly when it comes to recruiting women and recruiting people of color, something that the Democrats have done more of um, in the past. I think what we are starting to see, and I know Julianne is one who's really been working on this, are Republican efforts to do the same um, but they're sort of starting at a disadvantage on that because they simply haven't been doing it, and there are still some, um, I think, party impediments that are in place. Um, I'm going to give a plug here. I have a graduate student who's actually working on this issue and looking particularly at um, sort of recruiting people for, to run for judgeships. But what was really surprising in a survey that she did recently of Georgia lawyers is that there is no difference in uh, whether or not people – think about running for office or want to that are Republican women versus Republican men or Democratic women versus Democratic men. It's actually not a supply issue. It's a demand issue, right? Rather, we're saying that the recruitment efforts on the other side are lessened that the party elites are not as welcoming to having um, women running. And so that's actually causing this backlog. And that's something that's going to need to be discussed.
2: Belinda, a question for you, uh, and I, you made sort of an allusion to this. So, I mean, one of the things that's become clear through your efforts and just the, the political discussion uh, in Georgia is that, um, you know, Democrats very much see being a woman uh, and, and being and running is in and of itself a powerful qualification and something to highlight, just as sim- simply being a woman, you know, for the sake of diversifying the office holders and stuff. But... But go a little bit deeper into what you believe this, let's just call it this group, should they be elected, will put at the top of the agenda. What's first, second, and third if they get their way in the legislature?
4: I believe these women bring a very pragmatic and practical, compassionate approach to public policy. They look at policy in a different way. And I think there's a really strong case to be made, for example, with this recent report of the inspector general um, complaint filed out of the um, Osceola facility. The strong statement you heard from Nancy Pelosi it exemplifies the kind of, of compassionate leadership women bring to such an issue. And then Amy was talking about the bench. And what I'd like to say about that is Nikima Williams is a perfect example of somebody who was in the bench. She was a part of our first ever year-long Win Leadership Academy program back in 2012. Then we endorsed her when she ran for state senate in 2017. And now she will be more likely than not the congressional nominee.
1: Um, All right, so thank you for that, Melita. Julianne, let's talk about, we've talked about this on the show before. You have been, you know, relentless in your efforts to try to recruit more women to run as Republicans. Uh, And and we recognize, and you've said on the show, that it's been a challenge. You're making some inroads, I think it's safe to say. But here's what's really interesting, Julianne. Um, If Georgia follows a national trend, there was a fascinating piece in 538 the other day, pointing out that, in fact, 2020, in many ways, is going to be the year of Republican women candidates, um, pointing out that between uh, 2016 and (laughs) uh, 2020, the number of uh, Republican women who are running for office in this cycle or who ran in either one or lost primaries uh, was up by uh, well over almost as much as half. So and and so I want you to comment on that and whether we're going to see that trend in Georgia in the years to come. But here's what I also find interesting about it and I'd love you to comment on this as well. We know that women ran in bigger numbers in 2018 in response to their uh, concerns about President Trump. It really mobilized a lot of women to get more active in politics. Um, One of the people quoted in this 538 piece, a political scientist named uh, Melissa Deckman at Washington College, uh, she wrote a book called Tea Party Women. She suggests that the reason Republican women are now getting engaged is as a backlash to the Democratic activists who have been so negative about President Trump. She thinks that those attacks on Trump are now mobilizing Republican women. So take all of that and go wherever you want with it, Julianne.
3: Yeah, that's a lot to unpack, but I will try. <laughs> First of all, um the the comment about Republican women running as a backlash to the Democrats attack on President Trump. I mean, that might be partly true, but I really don't think that that is the reason why you're seeing an uptick of women running in the Republican party. I think that that regardless of political party women as melita said we have a certain worldview. we have a certain sphere of influence when it comes to paid leave when it comes to child care when it comes to equal pay we have our own viewpoints that are based on our own life experiences and a lot of those are things that men just do not bring to the table but democrats are beating us uh, when it comes to the importance and support of female uh, candidates and elected officials which is something we need to work on uh, wholeheartedly as you know my work on that um We have tremendous leaders here in Georgia, leaders like Jan Jones and Katie Dempsey that have worked extremely hard to run and win, but, you know, despite their solid, experienced leadership, despite their hard work and ability, um, they have still yet to overcome a lot of those political barriers or the glass ceiling, if you will, when it comes to achieving the highest levels of leadership in Georgia politics. And I think it's partly our own fault in the Republican Party because we use terms like, well, Republicans support people because they're the most qualified, not based on gender. And what we're saying when we say things like that is we're making women feel, we're making, especially a lot of these um, suburban women that, that work, we're making them feel like we're saying, well, women are just not as qualified as men. And I think we make a mistake when it comes to our messaging on that issue. But I want to point to a very important article um, that was written by Tamara Hallerman in the AJC back in August on women's Mm -hmm. suffrage. That it was, regardless of your political party, that is a tremendous article and you need to read it. Because it talks about how an anti-woman sentiment, when it comes not only to the vote, it goes all the way back to the 19th Amendment and the passage of that, but... And how it uh, transitions to today, how the anti-woman sentiment is actually woven into the very fiber of our state's history. So I think that yes, um, nationally we're seeing an uptick of Republican women, but we've got a long way to go here in Georgia, and and I'm in it for the long game.
0: Yeah, just to piggyback off of what Julianne was saying, um, somewhat ironically for Constitution Day, I'm actually later giving um, a talk sort of looking at this and looking at the history of sort of women in politics and voting. And that is really very true. We sort of see that carrying through. And it's this difficulty of that we are to some degree still having discussions in 2020 about whether or not women sort of as a group or as, you know, as people um, are capable of holding some of these political offices, right? Can a woman really be commander in chief? Can a woman really be a strong, assertive leader? Um, what are the qualities that have there? And we do see, unfortunately, sort of a framing of the discussion sometimes that diversity necessarily means a trade-off in quality. Which of course isn't true, right? I think the argument that a lot of people are trying to say is there's a ton of quality people that are being overlooked simply because of their gender or the color of their skin, particularly when it comes for running for office. You know, the side on the other side of it is to give you know a little plug for research I may or may not have done, right? We find that across the board, <laughs> um, women who are in office represent their constituents better. Um, And I think one of the things that I should point out is the reason we actually sort of, we had written a paper a long time ago that had looked at um, the distribution of earmarks, and we were talking about differences between the House and the Senate. And the reason that this project came out of it was Olympia Snow. She was completely screwing up everything because she was so successful at bringing things back to her state. And then when we started to look at it, we realized that it wasn't just Olympia Snow, right? who, of course, was a longtime Republican uh, senator, that it was a lot of other women who were in office as well who were doing similar things, and it stretched across the parties. And I think that's a really important note there.
1: All right, Amy, we give you the last word uh, in this segment. we got to get to a break. When we come back, Kevin Riley, you are itching to ask some questions, and we'll give you the chance to do that. Uh, But first, these messages. Amy Steigerwald, Melita Easters, Julianne Thompson, Kevin Riley, with us as we talk about women in politics and in the 2020 election cycle today. Kevin, I have to uh, admit a bias— I can't even, it is crazy to me that in 2020, we still are having this conversation about whether women, in fact, ought to be an important part of the political process. I can think of any number of cases where I would much rather see women running things than many of the men. And yet, Kevin, we still, as all of our panelists point out, this bias still exists.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely true and and I and we all know from our personal experience the impact and uh the good things that happen when you when you have uh, uh women and and a diversity uh, certainly in our newsroom. I mean, I always uh Uh, rely and we have women in key positions and with a lot of influence and it it makes us a lot better Um, I have to thank Julianne for plugging uh, Tamara Hollerman's uh, story about how women got the vote in Georgia thank you for that and Bill I'll send you the link so that if listeners want to you know read that uh, that, yeah let's see if we can
1: uh, put that link up let's see if we can put that link up on our social media I remember that story it was a good it was a good piece yeah it really was Um, um um, Direct Melita, question though uh, for Julianne, can I ask her one?
2: Um, sure. So, uh, you know, you, you've talked about your your efforts, Julianne. I think that your point of view, uh, you know, about about the messages and that were great insights. Now, if bring it down to Georgia, if you were to get the you know groups of women into office that you've been trying to recruit and get elected. What, you, what would they put at the top of their list? In other words, you know, what, what kind of bills would they pass? Is it, what would Georgia citizens see from them, uh, uh, you know, in your view?
3: Well, I think a, a variety of things. First of all, I think that Georgia citizens would, first of all, let me say this. Women care a lot about the same issues that men care about as far as jobs and the economy and public safety. But I think that the fact that we have our worldview when it comes to childcare, paid leave, equal pay, I think you would see some of those issues start to come into play and be talked about a lot more in Georgia than than are what being talked about now. And I um, I think that that kind of empowerment for, and it's not just about now, Kevin, it's about for the future, it's about for our daughters, it's about for our grandchildren, It's about for women in the future being able to to see that they have the opportunity to run for office in the state, that if they want to be a successful woman in politics in the state of Georgia, you know, it's open for them. And it's just been very, very difficult in the Republican Party to make those kind of strides in Georgia. Believe me, I know I am a woman in Georgia politics, and I can tell you that there is a definite (laughs) prejudice against women in Georgia politics being as though uh there's there's just something about the male class that is running things that is always telling the rest of us well we may support you but have you asked permission have you gotten the blessing of the good old boy group that's running things i mean i have literally when it comes to i haven't ever run for office but literally when it comes to initiatives that I wanted to spearhead or things that I wanted to work on, I was literally told, and I won't say by who, but I was literally told, you need to get the blessing of this group, and it's a group of men that control a lot of things in Georgia politics. And that is. Oh, come on,
1: name some names here, <laughs> no. Julianne. We want names.
3: <laughs> Can't do that. Can't do that. But I was literally told those exact words. That is the mentality right now in Republican politics in the state of Georgia. And it's what so many of us are working to try to change.
1: M- Melita, ah. it's not as if the Democratic Party is pure when it comes to the way men deal with women in politics.
4: That, that may be true, but I do believe that the prejudice against women in politics is primarily on the Republican side of the aisle, in part as evidenced by the number of women in contested races this fall from each party. There are 29 Republican women um, running for um, Senate races on the Democratic side of the aisle, and only two on the Republican side of the aisle. There are 78 Democratic women running for contested races in the State House, um, and only 24 um, Republican women running for contested races. So um, the Democratic Party has been more welcoming, I think, to women. And in part, because 20 years ago, we decided that win list would exist to represent women in numbers seeking office women in numbers. Um, to to counterbalance the good old boys network that had defeated somebody we all admired who had run for a statewide office and lost. But I think the issues that bring women to seek office on the Democratic side of the aisle, at least, are things like health care by expanding Medicaid, full funding for public education, protection of the environment, and lowering um, specific targeted issues like lowering the maternal mortality rate where Georgia ranks towards the bottom and the things that Juliana mentioned like childcare and equal pay.
1: Um, all right. So Amy, and, and here, just to give you a chance at this, it is interesting the, the, the issues that Melita just pointed out and that Julianne is interested in and that Julianne fights as a Republican woman Uh, are some of the very things that Republicans have not been able to embrace. Uh, Melita mentioned child care. Um, We know that when uh, President Trump was elected, his daughter came into the White House saying that that was going to be her big issue. She was going to fight for uh, universal child care in the United States, which seemed like a, a terrific goal, and yet it evaporated. Uh, she could never uh, 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 find the momentum to make it a reality, and it does seem as if Republicans, that peop- people like Julianne continue to fight a Republican Party that just isn't as open to the issues that matter to women, the environment being another one, which um, Alita mentioned as well.
0: So there is a theory within a lot of the sort of political science and also sort of sociological and organizational theory literature that's about critical mass, right? The idea that it's not simply enough to have a few people in an institution who reflect certain vantage points. But it is, right, that's sort of a necessary step one, but it's not sufficient to actually get change in what the institution is doing. That instead you have to get to a critical mass, which is sort of some threshold where that group on some level has enough numbers <clears> that <throat> their vantage points, that their positions are going to be heard by the rest of those in the institution. And so I think partly what we're seeing is that um, it is a long term process. So to say that the Democratic Party back in 1992, when the number or the percentage of women in Congress uh, doubled from five to 10 percent, had a noticeable impact on the types of policies that we saw coming out of it is not true. Today, however, right, the Democratic caucus, um, and we see this in the House, right, is in fact uh more, right, women and people of color than it is white men. And that starts to shift the types of policies that we're seeing coming out. It's starting to shift uh, the attention that is given to these issues and where they're placed in. Um, The issue of that lag right on the Republican Party is that it's still a difficult thing to see and to (laughs) see that shift. So, you know, in the Uh, Georgia Senate, for example, there are two Republican women that serve in the Georgia Senate uh, currently, and that means that it's difficult, right, for their positions and their vantage point to be heard and to really shift where the discussion is going, and that's the type of thing that takes time, Um, and I think that we will start to see, but it takes a concerted effort uh, to get to that level. Kevin?
2: Kevin? Uh, for both Melita and Julianne, and I'll start with Melita. Um, when you are recruiting a woman to run, what is the most important thing that you tell them about what's what they should know before they dive in? And I'm coming to you, and Jul- Julianne, with the same question.
4: The, the most important thing we try to talk to women about is whether it is the right time for them to run. In their business, personal, family life, because sometimes women um, get overwhelmed when they become a candidate. And so we like to set the groundwork for what they can expect, because a woman who knows what to expect from being a political candidate and then makes the conscious decision to run for Mm -hmm. office is a better candidate. Than somebody who on a whim the day of the last day of qualifying plucks down some money and then goes, Oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? So we try to really have frank conversations about what to expect as a candidate and how to um, prepare themselves for that. And we also talk to people about the amount of money they'll need to raise and the amount of time that the job will take. Once they're elected, because there are times when we have helped women get elected, um, win their office, and then they find out they get fired from their job because their boss didn't really understand what it was like to serve. So we like to make sure that women are fully prepared for the part of the campaign that will take away from family life and for the actual service before they run.
1: Julianne, let me. Julianne, why don't you jump in before we take a break?
3: Sure. I I agree with everything Melita just said. Those are the same things that that I would talk about (laughs) with women, Uh, the timing, whether it's the right timing, the money that needs to be raised, um, and the preparation to work, and to also uh, be prepared for a very, very nasty Republican primary, especially if you're running against a man. Um, that's just reality. But, but let me just go back to what we were talking about earlier. Amy is right. It is going to take time, but it's also about messaging when we say, um, when when we talk about these issues that are important to women in the Republican party, we're not talking about compromising our principles or our platform. We're not saying that you should be pro-choice or that you should, uh, be against, school choice or anything like that you know we're we're not even dealing in those issues when we're talking about trying to recruit people to win or to run we're trying to recruit women that that do support the principles and the values of the Republican Party and we're not asking them to compromise on those and supporting paid leave supporting childcare and supporting equal pay those have absolutely nothing to do with compromising the principles or the platform of the Republican Party. And people need to realize that.
1: All right. we got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, we're going to expand and look at this conversation on a national level. You're listening to Political Rewind. Our great behind-the-scenes team, Amelia Brock, Sam Burmis dawes uh, have already posted Tamar Hallerman's article on our social media platform. So if you want to read the piece we talked about a little while ago, which was Tamar's uh, uh, going back into history to see the reluctance that Georgia uh, had in uh, passing the 19th Amendment, uh, it's available to you on our our social media right now. Uh, Amy Steigerwald, um, some of the most— uh, uh troubling races, let me say it, most vulnerable, that was the word I was looking for. Some of the most vulnerable incumbents, certainly in United States Senate races this cycle are women. Uh, Jody Ernst in Iowa, Martha McSally in Arizona, Susan Collins in Maine. Uh, all three, of course, are Republicans. What it, should it? Is there something that ties all of them together that we should understand about why they're all in trouble?
0: I think there's two things that are perhaps going on there. The first is that studies continually find that women incumbents are more likely to face stronger challengers than their male counterparts, both in... Uh, primaries, as well as in general elections. It's easier to recruit someone to run against a woman. And so I think that's part of it. And we see that, um, particularly in those races, right? the Democrats have been able particularly to recruit incredibly strong challengers um, to those women. I think the other issue, which is um, a bit more about the context of this particular election, is that in quite a lot of places, Maine is a sort of particular example of this, there, the incumbents, particularly the Republican incumbents, are also treading a very thin line with a president who is with an incumbent president who's running for reelection and who has consistently had a very low approval rating. Um, he's really not able to get much above 40 percent. And what is it's shockingly constant. Um, it really doesn't matter what happens. Trump hovers around 40 percent. And so that makes it really difficult. And I think we have seen, um, particularly those three, uh, Susan Collins maybe the most seen, having to tread sort of this very careful line of the reality is her constituents are not sure, and they would actually like to see her break away, I think, in some ways from the president. Um, but that's a hard thing to do when you're running as a member of the president's party. And so I think that part of it is a, a secondary context, which is, um, perhaps somewhat unique to 2020
1: the Trump of the Trump effect all right so Julianne let me bring that home and then we can go back to the national if you want Julianne to what extent is Kelly Leffler uh, handicapped by being a woman <laughs> candidate in that field of 21 uh, candidates who are running for Senate seat number two
3: I don't think she's handicapped I don't think Kelly Leffler is handicapped I think that she has. The financial resources um, to to run a very formidable campaign. Uh, when it comes to both uh, Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins, they are both running extremely close to the president, um, and and their relationship with the president. They're both running to win the base, and uh, but at some point they're going to have to shift uh, to win a large percentage of the suburban female vote as well as a certain percentage of the African-American vote, too, if they want to win this race. So I do think that this is a very viable race for Republicans, uh, whether it is going to be Leffler or Collins or both that come out of the jungle primary remains to be seen. But unlike some of their counterparts in other states that are distancing themselves from national politics, both Loeffler and Collins understand that here in Georgia, uh, the base has a very strong approval rating. The Republican base has a strong approval rating of the president and they are running their, both of their races uh, based on their relationship with the president. I
4: I think that Loeffler is, more um, hampered by her ties to both Trump and Brian Kemp um, than any other thing. And yes, her money will um, buy her a lot of TV time, but if there's not a good message to put forth with that TV time, it's money down the drain. Loeffler's um, not proven to be I think a, a popular candidate um, amongst most women. And I think that um, her the continuing COVID number, um, the numbers which put Georgia ahead of so many other states for so long, um, harm Loeffler in her ties to Trump and Kemp.
2: Kevin? You know, I, I'm hoping Amy uh, can can offer some insight here or or, or, uh, or Julianne and Melita. Um, when, when all the smoke clears uh, as, as it pertains to President Trump and, and, and Biden. So, of course, everyone on every side has the anti-Trump or the anti-Biden shtick, you know, that they're using. But what is the issue that will most... Appeal, influence, get women to vote for a candidate uh, on either side of the fence. I mean, we—I get you know, criticizing Trump is there, criticizing Biden's there. But what is the thing that matters?
0: That is an excellent question,
2: and if we could all
0: pinpoint that, it would be fascinating. I mean, it does. So one of the thing is just in general, we know. Women seem to, and again, this is speaking in broad generality, so this obviously doesn't apply. But women do appear to uh, respond particularly to broader communitarian appeals, right? To policies that are recognizing that you're you're part of a unit, right? You're part of a family, you're part of a community. Um, that's where issues about childcare come. Uh, those that recognize the the self-sufficiency of women and the fact that, yes, women are not, in fact, right, most families, you don't have a stay-at-home mom anymore or a, quote-unquote, housewife, right? Women are working, and they're working in the Republican Party, and they're working in the Democratic Party. Uh, they're essential workers, right? They're worried about how they're going to pay their bills. And so I think it's a recognition of that. Um, the other side of it is that women um, women just generally vote more. Um, they that already sort of turns out, but I think as to who they choose has a lot to do with their own personal uh, answers of what are the best solutions to solving those problems. I think there's an agreement on what the issues are, and then they are affected by <laughs> the alternative choices on the different policies. But I think getting women to turn out is uh, a lot of times it's a more communitarian appeal.
1: All right, let me throw something out in terms of that. Um, I'm looking at the Economist YouGov poll, which is uh, really an extensive poll done August 30th and September 1st. 1,500 adult uh, uh, likely, I'm sorry, registered voters. And, Juliette, I'm going to go back to something about whether or not the law and order message is resonating or not. While many of the people polled, while a majority of the people polled uh, think that COVID-19 is a really crucial issue in the 2020 cycle, when people were asked, how safe do you feel in your neighborhood, and again, I want to relate this to women, 90% of women said they feel very safe or somewhat safe, which suggests that that the president's message on you should be frightened uh, about the riots coming to you may not uh, be resonating whereas his handling of COVID-19 is. So first, uh, Julianne, and then you, Melita, when Kevin asked, what are the issues that will motivate women voters? Those two are interesting bellwethers, I think. Julianne?
3: Well, I mean, I think it's an important question, um, but (laughs) I think that, that the way that the question was posed doesn't necessarily mean that the law and order message isn't resonating. Asking women if they feel safe in their neighborhood and them, and them uh, saying yes doesn't mean that they approve uh, the anti-law enforcement rhetoric and a lot of the issues that are going on in some of the cities where they are having rioting and looting. Um, I think when it comes to Democrats, the Achilles is going to be the law and order issue. I think when it comes to Republicans, the Achilles is going to be the COVID issue. And that's how I think it's going to break down uh, when it comes to how women view the two parties. So I think it, it is going it, to it's going to really matter what happens over the next seven weeks. But going back to Kevin's question, just very, very briefly, I agree with everything that Amy said. But I, and I, I just wanted to add when she talked about um, the fact that there are not as many women who stay at home, I just wanted to add that is true. And if you are a homemaker and you want to win the female vote, do not use the term housewife.
1: Yeah. All right. Melita weigh in on all this.
3: Well, I think that the,
4: the, the Trump uh, insistence on a law and order platform is his way of shoring up the base, of evangelicals. These are people generally who attend churches that are more fear based fire and brimstone kind of messaging. And so his fear based law and order message resonates in that same way. And I think that the handling of COVID and the absolute distance from the truth, which the Trump administration has um, perme- it's permeated society in such a way that his lies are, are so, so, so many that, that people um, are beginning to really look back and say, do we want our children to grow up to tell this many lies?
1: Uh, one real quick question as we run a little short of time. Melita, I want to ask us some of you. You know, you're 20 years into recruiting women to run for legislative races. You've had great success in many of them. You're proud of the work you've done. You'll continue it. But we don't have enough women, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, running for national law, running for Congress. We have enough women are running maybe for the House, but we, don't have, we never have enough women running for U.S. Senate. Why doesn't the win list expand to trying to help put women in office uh, in uh, Washington? We're, at, we're down to like a minute, so you've got almost no time to answer this.
4: <laughs> well, it's something that we, w- we have looked at in the past and we may revisit after this election cycle, but I believe the, having the bench for legislative people who can later run for Congress is enough right now.
1: Thank you I'm sorry to throw that at you at the last second. Kevin Riley, Melita Easters, Julianne Thompson, Amy Steiger, well thank you for again. A wonderful conversation about women in politics. I'm Bill Niggett We're back again tomorrow. In the meantime take care. stay healthy, wear a mask and for goodness sake, get a flu shot. See you tomorrow. I know the answer.